all of the trouble we have, all we needed was you. What are you looking for? Food and something to drink. Water's over there. No, no water. Uh, eating and drinking, killing, that's all you can do, just like the rest of your kind. That's all you yeah. can think of. Welcome back to the Blood and Black Rum Podcast. I'm Ryan from Coldsploitation.com and TikTok now, I guess. And I'm joined with my co-host, Martin. We have a TikTok? Uh, we don't going? have a TikTok. Coldsploitation. Well, I guess you could... You're we in Coldsploitation terms, right? So, yes, we have a TikTok. I do occasionally, and I do put our uh, clips from our episodes up. Like, uh, for example, I put a clip up from um, our episode on um, that fucking... Where's that, where's that fucking West Craven shitty one? My soul to take. My soul. I put a I put a uh, a clip up from that where you were like, "There's a there's a blind kid in this." There is like, a blind kid. In yeah, that? I was like, when I Martin didn't, didn't realize that there was a blind kid in this movie. I don't even remember that movie anymore. To be honest with you, I like deleted it like completely from my mind. Like it happened. I experienced it. I don't remember. I don't remember the experience being good. I've kind of just packed it away. But you know, thanks a lot for saying the whole TikTok bit. You've made me fuck up the line from the the start of the show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead and do your intro, then I guess. Take take two. <laughs> yeah, uh, Martin, uh, my co-host. How's it going? There you go. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. You got the signature <laughs> opening. We'll make sure we'll get your signature ending in there as well at the end of the episode. Listen, as Bill O'Reilly once said, "We'll do it live. Fuck it." That's right. Wait, I lied. He said, "We'll do it live." Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had a we had a break um, here like uh, last couple weeks because we, we we took some time off. We 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 had a busy uh, Halloween schedule, so you know we normally uh, take some time off, a week off to to recuperate, especially after the last episode of being Halloween ends. We we had to doubly recuperate from that one. Um, evil, evil didn't die that night. That's yeah, and I did see uh, some people were commenting on Halloween ends as well, and so like the inevitable is coming. Halloween lives. I don't, I don't know about that. I I want my next uh, Halloween film to have the man in the jumpsuit be named like Tim Brown. <laughs> Just like an all man <laughs> name, <laughs> John Smith. John Smith, the local plumber, at <laughs> yeah. gets treated like shit by his neighbors and friends. His wife calls him a sack of crap. Isn't that like the uh, the whole idea behind like postal? The guy goes fucking postal in the, yeah, the video like, game and uh, uh, the movie that was based on the video game. I don't know if that's like the, I think the uh, I don't know if there's anything in postal that kind of sets off his po- going postal. I think it's just called postal because you can basically do whatever the fuck you want, and that's you know 
very uh very uh over the top yeah yeah you know i think the better one would be uh what is it walking tall with fucking uh michael douglas where he goes postal um no not walking tall that's that's a Chris Rock and or uh, uh that's a um the Rock and what's his name? Sean Patrick. Uh that's that's that movie. No, you're talking about um um well, fuck what the fuck's that name? <laughs> what the fuck's the name of that movie now? I know what you're talking about. I know I know what you're talking about. Um like from the 90s or you Right. Know. And it's just the name is escaping me right now. Falling down. That's ah, what there you're, we you're, go. You're, you're not walking tall. You're falling down. I I understand <laughs> where you went wrong though <laughs> on that one. But no, walking walking tall was like that remake with like The Rock and uh, yeah, the well, Sean yeah, that's William the... Penn or whatever the fuck his name is. This fucking three three names. Sean Sean Michaels. <laughs> the fuck is his name? <laughs> I don't know. Doesn't matter. I guess it was just with the Rock. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about anymore. We're way off. Track. Yeah, no. That's I would say the the one with, that you're thinking of is like the one where he's in the jungle. <laughs> yeah. That, who know? You can't keep track of any Rock movies anymore. They're all set in the same fucking location. So yeah. Well, you know what? Man's a fucking multimillionaire because of that. That's right. All right. So anyway, <laughs> back to the task at hand here. Uh, we decided that we wanted to do, you know, obviously we, we were going to do an episode in between, uh, Thanksgiving because there's, you know, four weeks before Thanksgiving. So, uh, it works out perfectly that we're going to get this episode in and then we're going to have a Thanksgiving episode in two weeks. Uh, so as a precursor to Thanksgiving, we're having a nice little Italian spaghetti feast on today. Um, just to get you prepared to have a little buffet of, of Italian before you get into your Thanksgiving turkey mindset. Um, and we had talked about doing a spaghetti western again for the show. We've done a few before. Uh, we started out the show with a, a spaghetti western. And uh, What's that episode, Ryan? Do you remember? Uh, it's episode one, Man, Pride, and Vengeance. Okay. Yeah, yeah I do remember. That was, uh, that was the fledgling episode, the, the beginning of it all. Where we covered a, a spaghetti western and we both of us had no idea what it was. It was just something that I had laying around and checked it out. But how that, most how most films get chosen on this podcast. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Some some fucking four K release that uh, he gets sent from vinegar syndrome and he's like, Hey, you wanna do this? Something that I've <laughs> heard of but haven't seen, so it's a perfect uh, opportunity to cover it. No, but but this time we're uh, returning to the spaghetti western genre, and we're basically starting at the beginning of the spaghetti western genre. Um, we're you know kind of picking up where it all f- was uh, influenced and inspired by, and um, this is one that we've actually seen. We've watched it together, um, and part of a, a trilogy of films. And that right there, probably what I've just mentioned, part a trilogy of films, start of the spaghetti western genre, probably gives you what this movie is like right off the bat. So, uh, no, no more uh, beating around the bush. We're talking about a fistful of dollars, starring Clint Eastwood. Now, I should probably point out as well, 
because I I have to. I mean, it's it's only fair I do it to James Woods. Well, well I was gonna say. <laughs> first off, why do a fistful of dollars when we could do so many others? Well, we got lazy this episode. <laughs> well, it wasn't so much that I was lazy. I know we wanted to do a, a spaghetti western. We had batted around a couple of other ideas, uh, um, and one of them wasn't really a spaghetti western. And I just wanted to do my Italian accent and and the whole spaghetti feast thing for this one. So it had and to be a also, spaghetti western. And also, we haven't done a Leone film yet, so we're gonna be eventually doing them all. Sure. So yeah, at some point, at some point, not not like in the. We're not doing a block. Like yeah, we're not no, we're not doing them all together. But uh, at some point, we'll cover them all. Um, but yeah, like. With a fistful of dollars, um, we you know we we uh, have both seen it, so it's a it's a good opportunity to talk about it now because uh, you're a really big Leone fan and spaghetti western fan in general, um, and it's a good place to start too because it is probably the epitome of the spaghetti western genre, like where where it kind of all started, where it stemmed from, and it's interesting to note too that the uh, a fistful of dollars did not do very well when it released, um, especially within the Italian submarket. Italians really did not like this movie at all. Uh, they panned it, and it really didn't get um, much recognition until American audiences kind of saw it and was like, oh. Well, it did really well at the box office in Italy. It was the critics. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. This, yeah. Is, this is dreck. But it was like the top sure. film in Italy. Um, oh, and sorry. that Yeah, that brings me back to the, the other point I that say, I was going to make. Yeah, I was going to say. I was talking about James Woods, and I got sidetracked. So, like James Woods, I do need to point out that Clint Eastwood hold on, hold, now... Hold on, hold on. You, you need to finish with James Woods' statement. You, start, you said, like James Woods. Well, you forgot the... James Woods is a complete asshole. You should point that out. Uh, on Twitter, off Twitter, you know. Probably making a very good uh, niche right now on Twitter because of Elon Musk's um, acquisition. Uh, but... We do need to point out he's a dick face, and um, that just goes without saying whenever we cover James Woods on an episode. But uh, as I was saying, like James Woods, Clint Eastwood has now also become quite a bit of a dick face. I don't think it's sent like of like I think Clint Eastwood is, is always yeah a no- Clint Eastwood noted asshole. <laughs> yeah, I mean it definitely he's it's definitely come to light a little bit more as he's gotten further into the political sphere um you know in his think, later life i think when we talk about this movie a little bit more there's a part in this movie that's basically he just redid for that one republican convention where he's talking to a chair <laughs> yeah you know <laughs> there's a part in this movie and i think and we'll discuss that when it comes up but there's a part i was like hey look this, this is where he got his whole like you know talking to the chair like oh you're the bad guy huh i don't like bad guys or whatever the f- fuck crazy stupid thing he did. <laughs> yeah, I just want to point that out. You know, we don't. I don't idolize uh, Clint Eastwood on here. Um, you know, he did. He did have a really great run in the '60s, where it's understandable why you would want to uh, kind of mimic what he was doing at the time. And don't forget the '70s. Yeah, in the '70s, yeah. And we'll talk about that too, like the stylistic uh, elements to A Fistful of Dollars and uh, what, you know, what the Spaghetti Western kind of brings to those stylistic elements because this is very, um, very much related to the culture and related to Sergio Leone's vision of this um, time period. So 
but it, but it, it is understanding that people would kind of emulate him at the time because he did make it look pretty damn cool. Uh, but I should we we just wanted to point out that now Clint Eastwood is far from cool in my in my opinion. Um, he he really did come to turn into you know the cantankerous old man of his character from Gran Torino. <laughs> Which at this point is almost like twenty years ago. Man. I know, so I know, like, yeah. It's like he played cantankerous old man twenty years ago. That's that's pretty impressive. Well, he's ninety two now, so like yeah, know. is he is he really that old? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's he's been around for a uh, long, yeah. long time. But I will say, if you know were to pick like a stereotypical American cowboy that you would want in a western like you know you got your john wayne fans you know i'm a clint fan Mm -hmm. i think he's i mean he's not as you know always the most charismatic or anything but his look you know his kind of bravado it's just like beautiful and iconic and he always does a great job like john wayne like you know once you've seen like one john wayne film you fucking i mean well you can kind of say the same thing with clint but so i guess to each their own on that but like john wayne like you know out of the billions of fucking westerns he did like he very rarely ever you know changed it up like true grit's like the only one i could think of off the top of my head that's not like just john wayne being fucking john wayne mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. no and that i can't remember which one it is, but the one film where he eats the kid into the fucking pond who can't swim pops up on my Facebook every now and then, and it's fucking <laughs> hilarious. Yeah. You ever see that clip? I don't think where, so, no. He's like, you can't swim? No, sir, I can't swim. And he grabs him and he fucking just yeets the kid, right? Literally just yeets him. Like, you can see, like, it's not like a doll. You can see he grabs <laughs> the kid and just fucking throws him in there. And, like, the mom comes out, like, he's going to drown. He can't swim. And he's like, about time he learns. Everybody <laughs> should know how to swim. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess you could say John Wayne had a very specific style that he pretty much used throughout most of his movies. But I would say that Clint Eastwood also does, too. Like, if you think about, um, you know, his no Man With No Name trilogy, it's very, the characters are very similar to... His presence in Two Mules for Sister Sarah. Like, that's still just the kind of guy that he's playing, is like in a kind of a. Or High Plains Drifter. Yeah. Or Hang him high. Like, <laughs> he's playing kind of in like an aloof guy who doesn't really care too much about any one thing that's happening. And I guess in the trilogy itself, he does kind of. He has like. The, the, the films kind of give him sort of a ambiguous morality that sort of comes through the plotting of the movie because at the beginning of this, especially a fistful of dollars, he doesn't really have a, uh, like a moral base that you can, you can, um, figure out until he kind of like develops it throughout the movie. And he says, I don't take money if I didn't earn it. And he has sort of like this, this ethicality to him about like wow. how women are treated and things like that. Uh, like, I, I think the whole him telling the Rojo say he doesn't take money that he hasn't earned is him just getting on the good side. Ooh, yeah, no, I I mean it it is, but <laughs> I think you get like those those sorts of like uh quick glimpses into how he feels about certain situations. He it, he he listen, you can't say he likes women. He decked that poor woman. That is he true. Cold cocks the <laughs> shit out of her. <laughs> but the face he makes though after 
he does it because it's not accident. He's like, he's like oh, like, <laughs> like, I don't know how they're gonna feel about this in the sixties. They're like probably like, listen, bud, if you're gonna do that, you gotta do that off screen, okay? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right, let's uh, let's take a break. Talk about the beer that we have on the show today. You were kind enough to go out and get it today. Yeah, because somebody's lazy and doesn't leave their house. Uh, not too often. Yeah. <laughs> I had a couple that I was going to throw your way if we didn't have anything, but you got this one, so appreciate it, bud. No, no problem. All right, so what we got on the show today is uh, from Sloop, and Sloop Brewing is one that we've had on the show a couple times before. It is one of my favorite uh, brewers, uh, especially they're doing a lot of really good Nipas, I think. Um, they're ones that they tend to release a lot of new beers um, throughout the year. So, like, they, they kind of, like, have various batches of new beers coming out. And the one that we got is one that we haven't had. And I think it's one of their newest batches, maybe not the newest. Um, this one's called Interstellar Burst. And this one um, is kind of notable because it is using, like, their normal base for uh, Nipas. It's got, you know, your your flaked wheat, your flaked oats, um, malted wheat, but then it's throwing in some experimental, uh, different hops that we don't normally see from soup. Um, this one has mosaic cryo, Nelson Sauvignon or the Nelson Sauvignon hop and, uh, Matuka. And, uh, those are actually from most of them. Matuka and Nelson Sauvignon or Nelson Sauvignon are from New Zealand. So it's got sort of like an exotic appeal to it here with the the uh, New Zealand hops, which are, you know, not really from around here. <laughs> so with this one, I think it's really, really tasty. I think it has a nice, uh, unique flavor profile to it with the with the hops that they're using. Um, I think the Matuka kind of comes out, but what really does come out is that Nelson Sovin hop, which gives it sort of a grapey character. And um, I get... I definitely get some of that white grape flavor, you know, from, from like the Sauvignon grape that, uh, also used in wine. But, um, I do also get, you know, kind of a fruitiness to it, especially a tro- like a tropical fruitiness. And, um, I think it's a really tasty beer that I, I, you know, it's not something that they normally do is a lot of times when you have sloop, you're kind of like, that is a really good sloop beer because sloop has kind of has like this identity and, they kind of do sometimes taste very similar to each other. But in this case, I think this one kind of goes outside the box, gives us a little bit something different with those different hops. What do you think? <clears throat> yeah, I agree. I'm kind of surprised about the kind of grapiness to this, uh, which makes this, you know, really interesting. You know, it's not, not usual for, uh, Nipas, let alone any IPA, that have like a grape taste, and it is kind of like a white, you know, white grape taste to it. Yeah, it's nice, you know. It's, it's something new. It's something different. You know, Sloops Nipas are. Uh, we've done pro- they're probably the brewery we've done the most on the show. Either that or Genesee. Um, and we always say when we have a Sloop, there's never a bad Sloop. But when you mm-hmm. taste it, you're like, that's a Sloop. This is. You know, I would say something that's better from them. I mean, because I think the uniqueness of the beer is what's the appeal for. It's easy to drink, very crisp, refreshing. Excuse me. Uh, you know, I, I I would say the one thing that's kind of like, kind of, you know, 
hanging me up is the fact that there's like four different fucking hops in here. So, I mean, it adds like a unique uh, profile to it. But if like you're trying to discern like what the fuck is what, like cryo, what the hell's a cryo hop? I don't know. Yeah, the mosaic cryo. Oh, it's a little different. Yeah, a little different than the mosaic. So like, it's like cryo freezed instead, and gives it a little bit of a different. uh, It's like mosaic Nelson and Matuka. I'm familiar with, but either way, it's you know they know better than me. I'm no fucking uh, brewmaster. I just drink the shit. But it's true. I like it. It's you know it, it is really good. I would say definitely try it out. Um. Because I'm going to take a swig of it. Yeah, now that you mention it, like the only fruit that I'm really getting from it's uh, is the grape. I don't really, you know, get the traditional type of taste out of it. So, yeah, I, I do think that's pretty good, and it's you know something unique and something worthwhile to try. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, I I think they did a good job with this one, and uh, you know, using this particular batch of hops and. I like to see them kind of branch out. I like to see those experimental hops that give you a little bit something different than just you know your your common citra, which is just like give me get the, give me that citrus flavor, that very generic citrus, just grapefruit overload. Yeah, I think too. Maybe like I said could be wrong. Excuse me again, Jesus Christ. Um, could be wrong. I think uh, maybe the mosaic cryo, like maybe that's like a hybrid. Mm-hmm. Like you know maybe like they well they use like a cryogenic separation of the the hop i don't know the i don't even really know basically hops now have become like weed of beer like there's so many variants and so many ways to harvest it and what what do you use from the hop you know do you use the seed do you use the flower it's all it's all so complicated for me i don't even bother to try to understand the whole process behind it but uh, yeah it's something to do with like the cryogenic harvesting of the the mosaic rather than just like you know your normal i don't know, grab the mo- grab the mosaic uh flower and use that but yeah all the all these uh these experimental ones i think are really interesting giving us the you know uniqueness to beers um that you don't get with the the standard um hops and interstellar burst kind of gives us that with a, a unique blend of flavors that i i like a lot I think it's really, uh, really solid for a Nipa that doesn't go the grapefruit route like you were talking about. All right. Let's talk about having a handful of buckaroos. A wad of greenbacks. Yeah. A awful poster. <laughs> Have you seen, like, the Italian poster for this? Um, Let me pull it up and see if... On, it's on Wikipedia. Yeah, the one it's, where the guy's like uh, in midair, kind of like cr- falling over, and the, yeah, and the guy's crouched like another guy's. Like a, yeah, it's like the crouching fucking, pose from uh, uh, Man Pride and Vengeance. The the role that he does in that. No, it is a weird uh, poster because neither of them really look like Clint Eastwood. And they don't look anybody. They don't look They're just like, like, yeah. generic cowboys, like you know. Yeah, uh, like it kind of like looks a, like you like just. You're like a, you're going in- to see a musical, like, you know. <laughs> yeah. Cowboy, the musical. Yeah. Um, at this time, though, when Clint... So, Clint Eastwood, I don't think, really had done too much, right? Is this, this no, is- he was... He had... He was already on Rawhide. Oh, was he? Yeah. He was just... Oh. His whole, um... 
somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. His whole uh, like poncho and all that is from like he brought he brought to each film because he had him on something else where Sergio's like I fucking want that. That's what I want. Oh, okay. Yep, yep. I do see that. Yeah. So he yeah in the fifties he was working on Rawhide. Eric Fleming um, from Rawhide actually was given the role in A Fistful of Dollars, and he decided against it. And so that's why Clint Eastwood got the part. And that was probably a uh, something that Eric Fleming came to uh, resent later on in life, right? <laughs> who, who knows, I guess, if you replace Clint Eastwood with Eric Fleming uh, and you... You know, just try to swap them out in a fistful of dollars. Would it be the same effect? I don't know. But it sure seems like a bad decision. (laughs) Now you know what you know about uh, the trilogy and how influential a fistful of dollars became. You know, I I do like the the Wikipedia entry, too, about this. He's like um, that he didn't really want to film in a remote location like Spain, remote like the remote region of Spain. So... He's just like, nah, I don't think so. Which is, that's like one of the best things about like uh, Spaghetti Westerns is uh, they're directed by Italians. Their s- actors are all across America and Europe. They're the melting pots of... They're, sh- they're shot in Spain yeah. and then they're dubbed over because... You're basically just reading lines that you don't fucking know what's going on. Like, you know, you probably don't know what the fuck's going on. <laughs> They're like, and as tried and true as Italian film is, like, we'll just fucking overdub it later. Like, who cares? You know? You do have to kind of uh, respect that the, the films always had this cr- crazy amount of, like, very variety in terms of actors and cast and crew. Where they're, you know, it's like, you oh, know, we got an American here, and then we got... A German, and yeah. a Spaniard, and an and, Italian. And they're, all, they're all working together, possibly not understanding each other, you know, <laughs> and while they're delivering line. They, they have no idea what it, the other is saying, and they, it still works out, you know? It's still... They still make it work. It's it's pretty respectable. But yeah, this is, um you know, in, in 1964, it is a fairly early... um entry in the what would become a bigger um usage of like ver- various like uh cast and crew members of of different nationalities like cuz that that would that did become pretty common for like italian movies in general to to kind of branch out and be like yeah we got some spanish people over here we got some french this is this is a french spanish italian uh triple play uh uh that we've put together of production um, and it became pretty, uh, you know, pretty popular to do that uh, uh, for, you know, for tax purposes and things like that. But um, this one was one of the earlier entries, and that's what makes it a spaghetti western. Is that we have, uh, you know, obviously an, an Italian uh, directing. It's set in Spain, and uh, it has the very um, unique elements of the Spanish countryside. That gives it its um, particular look and feel, which I always love. Like I love the the uh, the feel of of uh, spaghetti western. That you just when you when you see it, you just kind of know. And there was there was obviously imitations, especially 
at the same time that spaghetti westerns were happening, especially as, as they got popular uh, into the 70s, um, people tried to to make these westerns look like spaghetti westerns, but they truly weren't. They weren't, you know, they weren't like a t- like what you would consider like authentic spaghetti western. Um, authentic spaghetti. I say it's I, I I do like it like the the Spanish you know uh, desert and countryside that they shoot it in mm-hmm. is you know obviously iconic and great, but also at the same time also not really American. You can kind of tell by looking at it like uh, like. Well, it could be look like you know the West, but it doesn't really look like the West in our mind. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. You right. know, but yeah. but but it kind of, it's kind of, at least in my mind it's overtaken like how like the West actually looked. You mm-hmm. know. Uh, uh, yeah. But I, agree. I mean, yeah. but I mean, like you know, and you'd see too, like you know, when Red Dead Two comes out, like the whole at least when you get to like New Hanover and like Valentine area, like that's like Unforgiven, which Clint Eastwood direct and star in. Like it's, you know, that's big sky country like Wyoming, which is also part of the West. You don't think about it, but it is, you know, and was part, you know, part of the expansion, but it's so iconic. It's so, you know, great and beautiful. And, you know, it's kind of amazing to think about too, that, you know, they're filming this in Franco, Spain. So, like the you know the fascist dictatorship of Franco is still going on then, and he's like, "Yeah, you want to come over and fucking film it, or like you know, whatever. Who cares? You know, like you know, maybe he was you know giving them money to like, yeah, make sure you look, make us look good, so to, you know tourists come here. Uh, it's just kind of funny, but especially yeah, I mean, too, especially too, because like, how how did these people become like kind of uh. Like if if Leone has in his mind, like I want to take you Jimbo and make it a western. Mm-hmm. Where can I shoot this fucking thing? Oh look, down there, this one little spot in Spain. Yeah, <laughs> you know, perfect. Like you know, I like I'm just I'm I'm sure somebody I because it's such a de- you know well documented thing. I'm sure somebody's treaded that ground. Like how the fuck did you get there? Like to thinking like that's where we gotta go to shoot that, but it's. I don't know that, so I'm ignorant of it. But it's just kind of like mind-boggling to think about, like you know, how that all came together. Yeah, I mean, and, and like we were saying, you know, as as one of the first spaghetti western movies, it kind of set the the uh, tone for what was to come from spaghetti westerns. And you know, in this one, I would say that the not all of the spaghetti western elements are here. What th- things that often stick out to me too is like the. Um, the uh, usage of like wooden bowls and spoons and stuff in spaghetti westerns too, which are are pretty um, pretty uh, prominent in later spaghetti western movies, and maybe not so much in the Fistful of Dollars. But I, do, I would I, say I, I was sorry to cut you off, yeah. but also like the dress, mm-hmm. like you know, Leone did do like detailed like uh, study of like like you know reason why like when you see Once Upon a Time in the West, why are they wearing dusters? Because that's what they wore, you know. Like you, because you know when you watch a John Wayne Western, they're running around in like pink, you know, shirts and yellow pants, and like let's go, and like no, they wore dusters because you know of cowboying reasons. Uh, <laughs> <Cowboy> <laughs> but like here, I say, but here, I, and like as like his films would go on, they become more and more like you know kind of nuanced and closer to reality. Here, they still have like an element of. That John Ford element of, like, you know, the American West, where, like, you know, you, when we see, like, the Rojas, they're, their bandito outfits are kind of, like, you know, 
over the top we like you know bandito we like you know like the one guy like they have like you know like roses and shit like you know embroidery work on their pants and shit and so, you know the hats are kind of goofy they're more like you know like i'm a cowboy you know like mm-hmm. with the hat on like the straps underneath it like you know just you know interesting to see yeah what do you think i mean obviously the the beginning of this movie as our stranger you know played by clint eastwood roams into this town joe joe yeah he's called joe joe this one joe um, what do you, what do you, th- what do you think about that opening scene? You know, as we, we see him roam in, uh, kind of get into a sort of, you know, argument slash getting shot at by the Baxter family. What do you, what do you, what do you think about that? Well, I think the first and foremost, the walk, you know, riding into town and you see the fucking noose hanging in front of the trees. Like, ah, oh, welcome to America. Nooses yeah. Ev- especially during this time. There you go. Nooses everywhere. Oh, you know what you. to expect when you're heading into this town. And then to see that child run away crying in the worst dub ever. Like, <laughs> <laughs> the child, yeah, the the kid in this one has a really bad dub, and that's uh, you know it's not that's not ab- abnormal for Italian movies. <laughs> no, it's not. But it's just funny. Like it's, you start off and you see like the kid like pop 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 like kid's not even doing anything. They're sh- shooting him from the back, and he's just like scurrying off. You know, um, and then to hear that fucking incessant bell, like, ting, ding, ding, and then to him, for him to be great, like, I'm Jose, the bell ringer, <laughs> like, you know, like, you either want to, are you here with the Baxters? No, maybe the Rojas, the sell guns, Ooh, what could it be, Ooh, I'm the bell ringer, <laughs> <laughs> and then, like, yeah, when he makes his way into town, and the Baxters are just kind of sitting there, like, oh, look at this asshole, we're gonna shoot at him, you know, it's a fucking, it's just a fucking goofy setup, and yeah. when he, they, he gets shot at, and then him and his mule take off, the fact that he jumps off his mule and hangs from the fucking sign, I don't get that, <laughs> like, what, no. like, what the fuck's the point of it? <laughs> yeah, I don't really get it either, and I also thought that too, when he first comes into town, you know, it, he, he rides up, he almost looks like extremely naive in this sense, because he's riding in just like... I'm a stranger. I don't. I don't know what's going on in this town, but I think I'll just check it out. And you know, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. I need some. I yeah. need some gruel. But he just kind of comes in swaggeringly, and then immediately gets kind of like put in his place. And you're kind of thinking, oh, like what's up with this guy? You know, he's kind of like a. I don't know. He's kind of he's kind of like a, a goofy guy for our protagonist. But then all of a sudden, he, he you know he makes a turnaround. And he he brings it back to the the, the uh, Baxter uh, guys, and he calls out that he's going to need three coffins. It's it's a great moment, you know, that of of the calling out to um, uh, what's his name, uh, Parapiro, however you say it, uh, Parapiro. Well, before that, what's great is when he's in the inn and he's speaking with the also poorly dubbed innkeeper. Uh, and then he opens like the wind. He's like, "Why are you here? I want, I need food. Fine, here's some food and water. I don't want water. Yeah, like, no water. Uh, no, that's you know that that right there is like emulation of what you want to be when you go into the go into like a saloon. You're like, are you thirsty? You've been in the desert for quite a while. Like, no water. 
I don't want any water. What is this about hydration? I don't don't I don't know the term. I'll take a whiskey. <laughs> well, down there cuz he's near the border. That's tequila. Tequila. But friggin' um But yeah, it's funny cuz he's down there and he's like you don't want to get involved. Get out of town while you can. They'll kill you. Excuse me. Jesus Christ. Such an indigestion right now. <laughs> They'll kill you. You see that? And he opens the window in the fucking coffin. Nakers, dude. He's like, <laughs> he's gotten really good at his job. He can size you up with just looking. You go out there. He'll be making a coffin for you. Yeah, it's great. You know, that's a, definitely a place that you want to be where the coffin maker is like, you know, on standby. Yeah, a, sh- a shout's distance away. Like, hey, uh, got another one. <laughs> the services Sit- are needed here. Sitting there, just planing away at these fucking coffins. They all have cr- crosses on them. What if Clayton's a Jew? It's true. Oh, all right, time to bury him. Whoa, he he's got a star of David on him. Well, fuck it. All I got is ready. He's these fucking cr- fucking. Uh, Coffins with crosses on it. He's dying for Christ. Let's go. Put him in there. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, mean, that is, like, a funny, great spot. But, I mean, like, it is kind of ridiculous when you think about it. Like, the whole idea is ridiculous that this fucking town has two different, like, uh, criminal aspects. And they're just sitting there, like, staring (laughs) across the border. Yeah. Yeah, those fucking Mexicans. We'll get them one day. It's like it's like it's like um a spaghetti western West Side story. Like the two Jets. Yeah. The two are just kind of like there and they're they're kind of like coexisting together in this very small town. I mean, like if you, you can kind of see the whole element of the town in like this one wide shop, but not only that, as I say, the fact like what is it in America? Is it in Mexico? Is it on the border? Like is the middle of the border like he's the border and like that's where it is? <laughs> because it wouldn't make any sense because we see the Mexican cavalry come through, but the the one Baxter, the head you know, the patriarch of the Baxter family, he's the fucking sheriff. So right. it's like one side like, you know, they don't ever say, but like 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 what the fuck's going on there? Like, you know. Yeah. Yeah, well, I do something, but that's Mexico over there. That's out of my jurisdiction. Shucks. <laughs> They're divided by artificial uh, country lines. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 I, I do, I do agree. A fistful of dollars has a pretty ridiculous premise, and it's kind of interesting that it took like four or five people to come up with this premise with the wow. story and screenplay. Well, it's also, you know, based off your Jimbo. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen your Jimbo? I have not. You can t- totally tell where it's aping from your Jimbo. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, it, it's it's definitely, like, it's it's got various elements of ridiculousness to it. I mean, the whole, the whole finale is absolutely ridiculous, right? <laughs> As we're talking about, the Rojos are basically murdering all the Baxters in town. They've finally taken it upon themselves to k- kill everybody there because, the, you know, we've got Clint who's going basically going around making the feud way worse by spreading various uh, news to each side in an attempt to make money. And then also, you know, uh, he realizes that the Rojos are probably not good people. Um Neither. Neither are the Baxters. Neither are the Baxters, but the kind of the Rojos specifically are 
uh, made out you're to be kind of like the the worst people. You're just saying that because they're sweaty Mexicans <laughs> in this film. <laughs> well, I think that the film, you know, Sir Leone is focusing on Ramon as like that the guy, the main main antagonist. Like, you know, yeah, the Baxters are bad, but would they be as bad if Ramon wasn't there to like kind of um, facilitate them being awful? That is one of I think one of the weaker points of this film is the fact that we see more from the you know the Rojas the Rojos before you know the Baxters like the Baxters are just kind of there mm-hmm. and so the whole like yep. playing off each other aspect I think is kind of underserved because it it does it's not equal in, like yeah. the exchanges they have which is also if sorry again if you play Red Dead Redemption two. When you get to Rhodes, it's kind of like the pro- like well, at least with that part of the story, and you're in chapter three down Rhodes, where that whole scenario is based off of you know your Jimbo and this, you know, between the uh, Braithwaite's and Grays, like the whole playing off each other shit, it doesn't really work as well because it's like you do these random missions for them, and it's like somebody knows you're fucking fucking around, and they're gonna know like you know sooner than what happens because you're fucking. Yankees dicking around in the South just showed up, and all of a sudden you're like, "Oh, yeah, I heard these horses are fit for Saratoga." Oh, I heard this, and I heard that. You know, it's kind of the same thing, and like you don't get you don't get the equal attention, like because in that game mm. too, you also spend more time with the Braithwaite's than you do the Grays. Yep, it's the same thing here too with the Rojas. You, you spend more time, you know, with them and the Baxters. Besides the fact that they're bootleggers. Like what's they're not anything to be really afraid of. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, like you do get that you know get that opening scene with the Baxters where they're like you know kind of assholes to Clint rolling in, but you don't. He takes care. He takes care of them. You know, right quickly. Yeah, you don't. You don't really get to know much more about the Baxters. Um, you know, you know, you get to see the matriarch. Um, and it does give us sort of like that storyline about um her family being murdered by the Rojos like later on in the movie. And she kind of, you know, obviously it's obvious that the film really despises the Rojos and you're supposed to kind of have a little bit of sympathy for the Baxters um, in this scenario. And I agree. We don't, it should be equal parts Baxters and Rojos like, yeah, they're all assholes, you know? Yeah. Uh, To to make it more amoral, like his, you know, yeah. Because, again, uh, Joe Clinton is, is, you know, it's not really moral or not because he's playing both sides and they're they're both supposed to be assholes that at the end you can be like, oh, well, what he did is right because they got their comeuppance, but, you know. The Baxters are just, they're not even, like, secondary. They're, like, tertiary uh, in the scale because, you know, with uh, Mary Saul and her kid and her, you know, husband and, you know, the barkeeper and all that, that's more in the forefront than the Baxters themselves. So that's, yeah. you know. Yeah, and, and like I said, like, you do, the film does try to give us a little bit of that moral element to uh, Joe, the stranger. You know, he, we we see that he's in it for money. He definitely definitely is looking for money in this this uh, uh, twofold uh, gang warfare that's going on here. But at the same time, he does have like a human concern here because he, he is concerned about Marisol. And when he finds out that Marisol and her son were kind of like um, taken hostage by the Rojos, um, 
they that's pretty much the turning point where it's like okay the rojos are the main antagonists here and we're our focus now is to see clint take out all of those rojos in a very um uh violent fashion and that's where we kind of get the the main crux of the the storyline and I don't mind that we get like a little bit of a moral look into the stranger. Although I do like how throughout a lot of the early part of this movie, it kind of leaves that open-ended. It's like, you really don't know what to think about him as a person because he doesn't really have uh, much emotion to, to show between like what he, what he's thinking about doing and what, how he feels about it. Like we don't really get get to see much about that. We get to see that morality when he comes back to the Baxters after they shot at his mule, him and his mule, and this is where he gives that Republican convention speech, and he's like, "No, I'm, I, I know you were just playing, but the mule doesn't, so why don't I think you should apologize to the mule?" And they're all laughing. And he's like, "You shouldn't laugh. My mule thinks you're making fun of him." Yeah. <laughs> and just, it's not nice if you make fun. Like, you know, that's like early. You can tell by watching that. So that's like early Dirty Harry right there. Like, you know, like. Right. Was it six shots or five? Well, do I feel lucky? Well, to you. Punk. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely it definitely has like that element of, you know, menacingness. Because you, I, I, I think it's important that we get that right at the beginning of the movie because it does kind of make him look like a goofball early on. So you, you really do need him to like come back from that and show them who's boss. But yeah, it's almost a slapsticky yeah. at first. Like, you know, like, uh, but no, it is great. And also too, that whole part where that standoff is happening and the buildup. And then when the shootout actually happens is perfectly Leone, And he would refine that even more in a fistful, you know, for a few dollars more. You know, and then in obviously in the Good and the Bad and the Ugly and Once Upon a Time in the West, that whole like standoff, the way he shoots at the tension he builds, the shots of how they're shot from the hip, and you get you know, it's iconic and great. And this film, that's all you know. This film, though, kind of low rent Leone in the sense of what he does later on. You do see. The, what he's capable of in that, excuse me, in that standoff. And it's awesome. And it's great. And that's when Ryan was talking about the whole, I need three coffins. And then he comes back, he's like, better make it four. And the guy's just like, I'm in business. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, he's like, all right. He's like, I don't give a shit. He's like, I don't give a shit. Yeah. I get my- when you're a coffin maker like that, you don't care how many people die. You're just, as long as it's not Keep you. That- Keep that graveyard full. Doesn't bother. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, you know it, it, that that is you know just great, and it's you know quintessential. Not spaghetti. I wouldn't even say spaghetti western. It's just quintessential Leone. At you know, great direction. Yeah. You know, shots. Yeah, great direction. Great. You know, it has that. that it's kind of like where spaghetti westerns really took off. In that you have those showdown moments. You have those very you know tense scenes. And then there's that payoff of something crazy happening that is like almost faster than you know what you can really expect any realistic thing to happen. But it, it did definitely influenced loads of things, you know, like especially Clint as a stranger being like this basically unstoppable gunslinger. Um, you know, it inf- obviously influ- influenced things like um, Justified, 
Um, uh, Stephen King's The Gunslinger. Um, it, it it there's no limit to how much stuff that this movie kind of ushered into the the canon of of uh, westerns and and pop culture. With that said, though, I'm glad that you brought up the fact that that this is Leone, um, but at, at an early stage because this is really the, uh, a fistful of dollars is a good movie, but you can definitely tell that it is Leone um, working in a you know very early version of uh, what he would go on to do with his themes and with you know his his usual um, direction and uh, you know shot setup because this movie does feel like a cheaper version of what was to come, um, especially with the good, the bad, and the ugly. But but in, in all of his movies, particularly, I think that A Fistful of Dollars does show some seams to his work that you don't get in the later movies. Um, you know, this one uh, doesn't have some of the iconicness that that you'll that was come to uh, would come into the canon in uh, like The Good, the Bad, the Ugly, with with very very long eye shots. You know, tense moments that were played out to like the literal length that anyone would put up with you know it's it's almost like in uh the good the bad and the ugly you get those lengthy scenes and it it's like they they took like a poll of people like would you watch this for five seconds longer people like no i would not <laughs> no if you sustain that shot of his of lee van cleef's eyes for another five seconds i would be out of this movie sergio Lillian. i would be leaving the theater so they're like okay noted <laughs> we'll cut that down five seconds that's not true, because that's what makes it. You could but look no, into like, Lee Van Cleef's eyes forever. And, and Eli Wallach, and it's great. But no, like, it, it is, and, you, you know, it's kind of great to see, like, you know, the roots. Um, this is definitely, out of all his films, the most gruesome of them. Uh, maybe not, like, total violence-wise, but the fact that they actually have, like, squibs and blood in this. Mm-hmm. A machete thrown through a guy. Yep. Like for 1964, the, that's like goddamn. Like, the <laughs> mowing down the entire army with you know with the yeah. Uh, but like also too, like the one guy gets shot at the end when he's peeking out like with the shotgun and the barkeeper you know shoots him. Oh, Chico! Chico's popping through and then he gets shot. We don't get to see, like, the effects of him getting blasted with his shotgun, but the blood is all from his forehead and shit, so which suggests he got hit in the fucking head. hmm You know, so that, you know... I mean, granted, by today's standards, it's incredibly tame, but, like, for 1964, I imagine it's like, you know, watching uh, Night of the Living Dead for the first time. Like, oh, my sure. God, that's, like, that's brutal. He threw that machete through that person. Yeah. <laughs> Which is awesome. He's just like, he, he goes in, he slaughters the people protecting Marisol, and then he comes in there like he's fucking Orson Welles and Citizen Kane, just like I gotta break all this shit. And then she goes, "Look out!" And he's doing it with a machete, and then she's like, "Look out!" And he just takes and fucking whips it at him, and it goes right through him, and he's like, "Durr!" It's so stupid, but so funny. Yeah. I mean, that brings us to, so stupid and so funny. It brings us to the end where, you know, we kind of have Clint. He's been kind of duped. He's he's one-upped, and he has... He gets this, shit beat up. Yeah, he, he definitely... Which is uh, rare. That's rarefied air for your hero to get, like, literally the 
blood and piss beat out of him. Yeah. But he kind of makes the best of it, and he makes this, uh, you know, basically like this almost an armor plate that he wears on his chest. And the ridiculousness about this is that you're relying on the Rojos, especially, first of all, you're relying on Ramon to not signal, like, just shoot, everybody just shoot this motherfucker. Like, you got, like, six guys just standing there, you know, with their guns in their hands while he's sauntering to them, like, oh, you thought you could stop me, huh? Well, because that's that's set up with earlier, with the suit of armor that uh, Ramon, excuse me, likes to plug, you know, as target practice. Yeah. And he shoots the heart. No, it's not definitely the, not the set- heart, not the heart, but the actual like shape of a heart. And he says you always have to aim for the heart. So when he's sauntering around, he's aiming for the heart. And also back then too, like you know, you can't shoot somebody in the face or in the back. You had you got to do a clean kill. You got to hit him, in, you know, right in the heart. So because that's what I would have been yelling, shoot me the fucking head! Like what are you doing? Right, or just <laughs> give give your call to your guys. Like he's not going down. Like everybody shoot him. Everybody, you know, like firing squad this guy. Not only that, though, too, just because it's fucking, like, uh, protecting you from getting shot doesn't mean you don't feel the fucking impact of, like, a, a 44, you know, round hitting a plate of sheet metal. You're like, Durr! you would have been, like, like you, you might not have died, but you would have probably dropped, like, Durr! Durr! <laughs> you yeah. know, but Clint's walking around like, yeah, this is a good day, good time. <laughs> Yeah, no, it almost, like, at a certain point, it gives it, like, a supernatural element to it, too, which I, I kind of like, you know, but but I, I think it is really ridiculous to just, to, to see this scene and, you know, especially now, you know, to kind of expect that everything was going to be okay by just walking out with, like, this one big sheet of metal that you're wearing. But it is a great scene, you know, it, and it definitely has that suspense to it. You don't know what's going to happen, and then... And then there's that final showdown uh, where Clint shows that he is the faster shot. It's great, and there, you know, and it, it does carry over that um, all of the themes from the from the beginning of the movie, where they're talking about like, it, well, is a pistol faster? Like, is it with pistol, a, a rifle? Yeah. A rifle and a pistol. A rifle is gonna win. Yeah, it's it, it does have the nice like through lines within the film, but. At the same time, I do think that a fistful of dollars does border on a real, real ridiculousness that we don't get with some of the, with the later movies. Like, it, there's always going to be an air of ridiculousness to spaghetti westerns and in, in in westerns in general, but I think this one kind of goes over the top at, at certain uh, scenes that it, that you don't get with like later films. Speaking of ridiculous, what did you think of the whole Baxter Manor being burned down, and then each of the minions running out and they're just getting shot and then lit up? Don't, on yeah, fire. don't you love that? Just like everybody As just starts, everybody slowly, comes out. Slowly, like like it's like a, like a Grand Theft Auto like Vice City mission, just like slowly sauntering out to get mowed down, and then like we surrender, and then like every time they're shooting at them, it's they're like shooting at them comically, like you know. Lifting their gun up, like, you know, like, by a mile. Ooh, as I knock my headphones off. Uh, yeah, it's You know, and then, like, after there are, like, 25 people come out, like, we surrender, but they get still shot. And then, like, the main back is like, no, don't, we surrender. And then he gets shot, and the matriarch comes out, and she gets shot. It's, yeah, it's, it's so fucking. Ridiculous. It's like uh, watching like brainless uh, animals come out and just 
like I don't know what's going on. Uh, just or yeah. NPCs like just uh, yeah, yeah. It's just, but it is hilarious. Just like you know, watching them sit there sweatily shoot at them. <laughs> I mean, the, the the film does have good shootout scenes. It really does, and Leone does a good job with the like use of the angles <laughs> that you see people getting shot at and um, things like that. But. Yeah, it has it has those ridiculous elements to it. Oh, mow down with a Maxim gun's pretty cool too. You know, yeah. it's like the cavalry comes like ah, and they're dressed up as Union soldiers. Like here's here's your weapons as we grab your gold. They just drop the you know part of the stagecoach down, and Ramon started just fucking mowing them down with the Maxim. That's kind of one that is believable because you know they're on horseback and stuff, and they like they're just riding around. They have no idea what's happening. They're just kind of like riding around in circles and that's kind of believable because they're like on horses the horses are scared and it's a it's a good scene it's it's and if you think about trying to finagle the the you know the logistics of that scene of having all these horses loud noises uh people falling off horses and and doing stunts and stuff it's a pretty cool um shot for 1964 you know, to, to the only pro- the only problem is every time somebody runs up a hill to get shot, it's by that one fucking like prairie flower that's like you know that bright red prairie flower. <laughs> They're all running up towards it like when they go. It's the same thing too when it's night. Oh, what are these night shots? Well, they're not at night. They're in the day. They just dim the fucking footage. Oh <laughs> man, yeah. The the version that I watched and I watched it in the day. I, there were a couple times where I'm like, I have no idea what is going on on screen right now. Like, I literally cannot see because they dimmed it so much that I cannot like, see what's happening. It's like, it's just great because, like, no, this is supposed to be night. Can't you hear the crickets in the background? And it's yes. like, you totally shot that in the day and then just, you know, dim, <laughs> dim the footage to make it, like, it's kind of night, right? And- <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's where the chintziness of this film comes in. But I mean, yes. it's kind of, you know, admirable, like, you know, like uh, almost uh, like student-esque. Like, you're like, oh, you tried. But that's not like, but that's not like, it's kind of like with the dubbing when it comes to Italian films. Because it's the same, th- a lot of Italian films do that, like, that I've noticed, like when they shoot the films. Like, if it's supposed to be a night scene, it's just shot in the day, but they, like, you know dim it like oh it's so it's supposed to be night but it doesn't ever look like actual night yep what do you think about uh any more Courtney's uh score than this one it's okay um the main theme which we hear constantly throughout the film I do like but it's definitely one of his weaker scores cause it's only got like two three different uh at least in the film, three different like uh, themes throughout it. Yeah, um, the main the main theme compared to like the main theme, and even for a few dollars more, obviously to get the bad, the ugly, and Once Upon a Time in the West, like it's it's okay, but it, compared to those three, like even like again, like uh, for a few dollars more has you know a really good score. Uh, it's very minimalistic in its usage. And you can kind of see kind of Leone kind of navigating that of like how to use it and as the films go on and how to use music more and more and more. Uh, so it's it's definitely okay. It's definitely worth like because I do like the opening credits with like you know the 
silhouetted like horses riding and people getting shot with a you know it's really cool but it's you know they would go on to bigger and better things after this right like, like you know score and and film yeah i mean i think i think more the the um main ideas of Morricone score are here. Um, I don't, you know, and you get like all the things that you would later get in a lot of better Morricone scores, like um, the chanting, like various chanting oh, elements oh, to it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Those are all kind of there, but I don't know that in A Fistful of Dollars it's really like um, a standout element to the movie. Whereas in other movies that Morricone worked on, the score is like the standout element. It's like, if you didn't have the score, the suspense just wouldn't be there. Uh, with a fistful of dollars, I don't know that that's really, that has that much of an impact. I think it would still be the same type of movie if it didn't have that score. Um, so it's not the worst Morricone score, uh, but I don't think it's his like best either. It's the same thing like Clint. It's definitely not Clint's best effort out there. No, but I mean, the look of like him in the black jeans and the poncho and the hat, like it's great. Like when I play Red Dead Two, my Arthur Morgan character, when I play him, that main hat I use is that estate hat, like that he has, like that, like Clint has, uh, like the Heartlands ca- costume that you can buy. But I kind of modify it up to mo- look more like kind of like the man with no name. You know, it just it's looks his look is great and his full beautiful head hair, you know, nice greaser hair that he's got. He's great, and then the whole like cigar in his mouth, the way he kind of has that small cigar, you know, burning in his mouth, it's just awesome. It's like oh, like I like yeah, that's yeah, this man, that's a man I can get behind. Mm-hmm. Well, man, he'd probably get behind me because I'm as manly as him. <laughs> well, I, I don't think, like I, like you said, I think that uh, Clint is uh, pretty good here, but I don't think he is at his Clintiest from the trilogy at this point. You know, the ones that I I see, like he, here, he is. He definitely has some of those tendencies, but I think, like you know, the smoking cigarillos and poncho elements are all a little bit more defined in the later movies, especially The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, where I think that takes, like, center stage and you know, really gives him that character element of, like, this is the, this is who he is, like, very, very specific um, elements to him that I don't think you get from A Fistful of Dollars. This, guy, this is kind of just, like, you know, as an introduction, it's just, like, this is a guy. This is just, like, Some any dude. random old guy sauntered in. Which is funny because if you see the tombstone within the graveyard... The one tomb's like marked at eighteen like seventy three or eighteen seventy eight, which would mean that if like this is all a trilogy with the same person in it, the good and the bad, and the ugly is like the prelude because that's still taking place during the Civil War. Mm. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's just funny to think about. It's something I never noticed before, but I was like, hey, <laughs> right? You know, when does this film take place? Who knows? We don't really know. We just know it's sometime after the Civil War because the tombstones out there are marked like 1874 and 1875. Mm-hmm. So, mm. Interesting. I didn't notice that. Well, I mean, that's pretty much all I got for A Fistful of Dollars. I think it's a, 
a pretty uh, simple movie for Sergio Leone. It does have like a a nice element of you know the the two warring factions to it, and like you said, it it is based on Ujembo, so it does have that um, that connotation to it as well. But I do think that it's one of the simpler um, excursions in the uh, in the trilogy and in probably in Sergio Leone's filmography too, but. Uh, Especially for a spaghetti western, I think it's, you know, it's it's a very cut and dry movie. And again, at ninety nine minutes, it is one of Leone's shorter movies, because he would go on to really ramp up the the runtime of his movies from here. Um, anything else that you wanted to add that I didn't get to? No, that's about it. Okay, so on a scale of zero to ten. Really poorly dubbed children. <laughs> what would you give a fistful of dollars? I give it an eight out of ten. It's a very, it's definitely a very good spaghetti western. It's a very good western in general. You can definitely see the influences it's had. Obviously, especially with like Back to the Future Three, the whole you know showdown with spaghetti western Biff. You know, is based off this. It's a very good movie. It's not great by any means, though. I mean, acting-wise, everyone's pretty incredibly wooden. It's not terribly dubbed right well. Uh, the budget's horrendous. But, that being said, the effort that Sergio puts into the film is there. You can see where he'll eventually go down the line with because... One of the main qualities of a Sergio Leone film is his direction because he has such a great eye on how to film things, the way to shoot it, the tension, you know, the timing, the editing, you know, how to build a scene up. Uh, That's not really here. We get to see that with, like, some of his traditional style shots in this, and they're great. But uh, other than that, it is a very run-of-the-mill western but with a gruesome, harder edge to it. You know, the body count, the blood. Um, you know, it, it's an enjoyable watch. Like, it is kind of slow for an hour and 40. Like, there, I mean, there's a bit of meandering. But overall, I think it's, you know, a very good film. And I think it's something definitely you should watch, especially if you like westerns. And... It just shows where he'll go and where he'll take the Western genre is miles further on up the road. Like, it's kind of, it's interesting to see, you know, his roots and then where he'll go from here. Because where he goes from here is awesome. Yeah, I agree. I I would give this an 8 out of 10 as well. I think that it's a really fun movie. Like I said, it's simple, but it really gets the job done. I, I agree with you. I do think it meanders a little bit throughout its uh, middle portion, um, but it kind of comes back to it. And, and there are uh, a number of scenes where it, throughout it, it kind of uh, capitalizes on the violence that's um, that that's kind of inherent in this movie. And I think that uh, Clint Eastwood does a pretty good job, but you don't really get to see the man with no name in, in, in the form that he would take in the, the couple uh, movies after this. Um, as much as you do, like with with the good, mad, the ugly, I think that he's kind of like a, a sort of like a a draft character here. Um, 
And I think that's probably a good description for a fistful of dollars. It's it's a good starting point from Leone, but I think he would go on to do uh, better things with the trilogy. And this movie is, um, you know, a, a nice precursor to that. You can see where he's going. You can see where the spaghetti Western genre is going to kind of offshoot from this. But it's still kind of like in its fledgling stages. And he's yet to like really encompass the themes that he would further take on later. Um but it, but interestingly, like it's it's good to go back and, and view this because you can kind of trace where it's going to go from here, um, and I think it it only gets better as it moves on for, from the from this movie. Um, so I think a fistful of dollars is really good, but I think there are better in the genre, um, and and that's kind of you know that happens with any genre that kind of starts out with its with its first movie. Um, it might be good. It might inspire, but there's probably going to be others that come along later on and kind of outdo it. And Leone himself got to outdo it with the good, the bad, the ugly. So it all works out in the end. So yeah, if you haven't seen it, you know, it's only been what, 60 years or so. So <laughs> you should probably see it <laughs> at some point. Um, so yeah. There's your spaghetti western. Hopefully you enjoyed mm. that nice heaping helping of spaghetti for with your meatballs. Yeah, with, with uh, spaghetti with uh, the the uh, two weeks that you've got until Thanksgiving. Fill up on that. Go to Olive Garden. No, no one said that. No one wants to go to never ending pasta. It's oh, it's ending. You'll quit. You'll quit sooner rather than later. <laughs> so. What is our Thanksgiving episode this year? Have you put Question. any thought into that? No, not none whatsoever. I'm not sure either. You know, I just watched Son-in-Law the other day. You watched what? Son-in-Law. What the hell's that? The Pauly Shore movie. It's a technically I, a Thanksgiving movie. I am not enough money in the world right now to do a Pauly Shore film. <laughs> Why would you do that to yourself? I don't know. Sarah likes it, and I didn't mind it either. I thought it was pretty good. I I found myself envying how much uh, either cocaine or energy Pauly Shore had in that movie. Why don't you just watch fucking uh, Goofy movies, too, so you can yeah. see Max's friend, uh, voiced by Pauly Shore. Yeah. Do the cheese whiz! <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Watch Biodome or I know. I can't believe you know what Pauly Shore is one of those people. I can't believe the nineties allowed him to have a career. Well, well. Like you know what Gen X? That's on you. Like how? Like I don't get it. I don't know. I. <laughs> so I don't. I don't know what else to do for Thanksgiving. Like we've done quite a few. Thanksgiving movies that I can think of. We could do Poultry Geist, although it's not really a Thanksgiving movie. Um, we could do, um, uh, let's see, what else? The Oath, which came the, out a couple, a few years ago. Um, the what? That the, sounds like the, a Lacey Chabert Christmas movie. No, The Oath. It's like where they get together and they have political strife and then they like start murdering each other at Thanksgiving. Um, Adam's Family Values is a Thanksgiving movie. Um... I'm trying 28 best Thanksgiving movies. Let's <laughs> see what's on this Rotten Tomatoes. Paul Blart, Mall Cop, does nope. take place at Thanksgiving. Jim Henson's Turkey Hollow. Yeah, I see that. The War at Home. Yeah, I don't know. There's, There are some Thanksgiving movies, but I just 
I don't know what to do. Grumpy old men? That's a Thanksgiving movie? I I guess so. I mean, I I think some of these encompass, like, multiple uh, holidays. Oh, yeah, the blind side. When I think of fucking (laughs) Thanksgiving films, I think of the blind side. Yeah, the blind side. You've got mail. Ooh, wouldn't that be delightful? Nice Tom Hanks, uh, Meg Ryan. Is that really a Thanksgiving movie, though? Or does it just It's on here. Thanksgiving in it. Struggling boutique bookseller. Kathleen Kelly hates Joe Fox, the owner of a corporate Fox Books chain store. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. We'll have to think about it a little bit and, and, and talk about it and see what we want to do. Oh, this is great. We should just do it on here. Scent of a Woman? I don't remember Scent of a Woman having fucking anything to do with Thanksgiving. Yeah, I think they're just throwing in any old thing that has like, there's one scene with Thanksgiving in it. Miracle on 34th Street. I, the like quintessential Christmas movie. Yeah. You're going to say, oh, yeah, Thanksgiving. You know. 55 Thanksgiving movies to put you in the holiday spirit. Mm. The perfect pregame to the big feast. I did see that. You've got mail. Another Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan. Oh, wait, that's the one you're just talking about. Yeah, yeah no. Talking about that and Joe's. Yeah, so that is a Thanksgiving film. When bookseller meets anonymous chat, okay. So when booksellers Kathleen Kelly and Joe Fox meet in an anonymous chat room, they quickly fall into an e romance. Little do they know, actually, how each other as business rivals, no less, join in, join in on both Kathleen and Joe's Thanksgiving celebrations. Oh, it is a Thanksgiving movie. Wow. Hold on, hold on. We're not done yet. We're not done yet. Don't you try to even fucking get this film out. Garfield's Thanksgiving. That's that'd be a good one. Yeah, I don't know. And then there's there's good stuff here. We'll have to we'll have to talk about it offline and see what we uh Uh North by Northwest. Thanksgiving movie. Has a shot of a newspaper detailing the film's action, which clearly goes down over the course of a Thanksgiving. <laughs> wow. It's very specific. Rocky, another classic perfect post-meal relaxing film. With the, Rocky is not a post-meal relaxing film with the family. The first installment in the Rocky Balboa saga features a Thanksgiving date night. Yeah, it does, but not the not whole prominently. Film. Yeah. Yeah. We're looking for something prominent. Uh, number 33, Dutch. Throw it in the garbage. We should, you know what? We should just uh, do Dutch again. Do it again. Re- reevaluate. Our first reevaluation of a film. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it and we'll figure out what we want to do for Thanksgiving. But Nothing. <laughs> if you oh, want. Fanta- Hold on. Fantastic Mr. Fox. It's not a Thanksgiving movie, though, is it? Wes Anderson's homage to Ro- uh, Roald Dahl's is a harvest of a turkey day delight. <laughs> Beyond the rustic setting drenched in warm oranges, reds, and yellows, there is a family dysfunction injected with injected with Anderson's clever wit and the furry cast, insatiable appetite for barnyard fowl. Not to mention there's a dinner scene hosted by a badger in a flint mine during which Mr. Fox... <laughs> 
toast all things to which he should be thankful for. Sounds like stop motion chicken soup for the soul to us. <laughs> yeah, so nothing to do with Thanksgiving. <laughs> all right. How about Silver Linings Playbooks? Again, it's one that you instantly think of when you're thinking Thanksgiving. Well, don't. Everyone loves Jennifer Lawrence. Don't you love Jennifer Lawrence? Yeah. All right. Well, we'll figure <laughs> something out. And we won't. We probably won't. We'll, we'll be just... back in two weeks with it. So thanks for listening. We hope you uh, enjoyed our episode on the Spaghetti Western, A Fistful of Dollars, and we hope you come if, back for our Thanksgiving episode. If this is any insight to what Christmas is going to look like, it's going to oof. <laughs> If we keep playing out one Thanksgiving film, this year's Christmas is going to be pretty just... Thanksgiving movies are hard to get, though, because there's... I don't, there's I don't none get that, are, that, though. like, great Thanksgiving movies. Well, I know, but I don't get that, though. It's like the original American traditional holiday, and it's like, yeah, no. No, I know. All right, so if you want to catch more of us, you can subscribe to us on pretty much any podcasting app that you can think of. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, our home base at anchor.fm. Subscribe to us. Leave us a nice review. We're on Facebook and uh, Twitter, although I don't know how much longer we're going to be on Twitter. Uh, but <laughs> you can find us on there, Apple and Black Rum Podcast. We'll be paying that $8. We'll yeah. Fucking. Uh, we have an email address at Podcast at gmail.com. Write to us. Let us know what you like, what you don't like. Um we will take that into consideration. And then finally, you can donate to us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Blown Black Rum Podcast. Uh, your donations will go back towards beer, so thanks a lot in advance. Um, thanks for listening to our episode on A Fistful of Dollars. We hope you enjoyed, and we hope to see you back for our Thanksgiving episode in two weeks. So until then, take care. <laughs>